You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Reading from Luke 10, verses 25 to 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbour as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbour? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbour to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Michelle. And uh, good morning, everyone. If you haven't met me before, my name is Luke, and I'm the lead pastor here. And I wonder, how do you define virtue, the, the life well lived? We, we always look to see people of virtue, we admire it, we want to see it in ourselves, and we, but how, how do you actually define it? I mean, we sense that it has something to do with relationships, with, with how you treat people. We all know the, the good golden rule, do to others as you would have them do to you. It's an ancient rule that is kind of you can find in pretty much every religion and every culture from ancient Persia to ancient Greece and Rome. There's a form of it in the Old Testament as well, Leviticus 19 verse 18, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. But the Bible says that there's something else that we need to understand as well. There's something even higher than this. If there is a golden rule, then there's a platinum rule as well, and that is to love God. Deuteronomy 6, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And really these two things go together. They don't make sense without each other and we need them to go together. We cannot love God without loving people, but we also won't love people well unless we love God. And that's really the focus of this parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, We're in the second week of our series on the parables of Jesus and this is one of the most famous. I I love how Jesus taught through parables. He's a great storyteller. And that's how he taught so often. And, and, and the, the great value of these stories is that we can kind of inhabit them. We come to be a part of the stories. We can look around them and experience them, to feel them and to, to see what it's like for all of these characters and to imagine ourselves in them. 
And here, this parable is really about what it means to love others and how to, to, to be a virtuous person, essentially. It's worth noting as well that uh, that's really how the guy sets it up. In Luke 10, we meet this lawyer who we're told has come to test Jesus, verse 25, and to justify himself, verse 29. It, he's, it's clear that this guy thinks that he's pretty hot stuff. He's a lawyer, not in the way that we use the term, but in the way that uh, the Jews used to use the term. It means that he's an expert in God's law. He's a teacher. He's a theologian. And as you may know, God gave his people a lot of laws, 613, in fact, in the Old Testament. And this guy would have been an expert in them. He would have known them all forwards and backwards, inside and out and off by heart. But it's not just an academic interest that he has in these laws. He, he also is committed to doing them and to keeping them and obeying them. In fact, guys like him were so conscientious in keeping God's laws that they set up a whole bunch of their own rules around God's laws. They used to call it fencing the law. Let's say God's law said don't go here, then they would put a law here, a rule here that said don't even go this far. They were trying to protect themselves from doing the wrong thing. So this guy is very, very pious. He's committed to doing what God expects of him and he wants to do this and he believes that he will actually earn God's favour through it. But he's not so sure about this Jesus character. By this time, Jesus had established quite a big following. People were flocking to listen to him. They, they wanted to see his miracles for sure, but they were also intrigued by his teaching. You see, Jesus taught with a kind of authority that no one else taught with, and so people were drawn to that. And he also had interpretations of the law that no one else was offering. And that actually was a bit confronting for people. These teachers of the law, these theologians, weren't sure about what he was saying. And so this guy is coming to test him. He wants to see what Jesus is all about. He wants to test whether he really understands God's law. And he's kind of hoping that he'll be able to expose him as a false teacher, and he's going to do that by trying to define the virtuous life. And so he comes up to Jesus and says, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? It's asked as a question, but really he already senses that he knows the answer. He believes that he can earn God's favour by doing the right thing. And so Jesus says, okay, well, what is written in the law? What, what does God say? And the lawyer answers, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbour as yourself. It's a good answer. It's what's there in the Bible. And Jesus says, that's the way to go, to do that. If you can do this, then you will inherit eternal life. But this is not quite enough for the lawyer. I mean, he'd come to kind of test Jesus and this conversation's over too quickly. And so he says, well, well who is my neighbour? And so Jesus tells him this very famous story. The story begins with a man on a journey from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's a journey of about 17 miles or 27 kilometres. It's basically from Werribee to the CBD and just as notorious. Uh, it, was, it was known, in fact, as the Red Way or the Bloody Way because so many robbers would hang out there. It was lots of cliffs and caves and sharp bends, lots of places where you could hide and then ambush someone. And that's what happens to this guy. The man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed him, leaving him half dead. Now, the man is probably going to die, except fortunately someone comes along. He's in luck. It's someone who comes and can help him. In fact, it's even a priest, one of the leaders of the people. Surely he'll be able to help them. But we're told in verse 21 that this guy saw him 
and pass by on the other side. He sees the guy lying on the side of the road and then just ignores him and walks on by. Now, how can this happen? I mean, this guy is a leader. He's a religious, spiritual authority. Why does he do nothing? Why does he just leave this guy there to die? Well, ironically, it's probably because he is religious. You see, the priests were bound to very strict rules of ceremonial and religious purity. This guy was serving in the temple, giving sacrifices, and to do that, he had to keep himself pure. There were lots of things that could make him un unclean or impure, and one of those things was to touch a dead body. Now, if this guy got unclean, it would be very awkward. He wouldn't be able to serve in the temple for at least a week. He'd have to get a sacrifice to kind of do, uh, do away with his uncleanness. Really, it was all just too much of a hassle. And so he decides that he's not even going to go close to him. In fact, some Jews even said that even if his shadow touched a corpse, he would be unclean. And so he steers well away from it. He walks by on the other side. And you know what? He probably told himself that he was doing the right thing. <laughs> you see, he, he has so many important things to do. People are depending on him. He's got a service to run, so he needs to stay clean. But surely this is not the right response. I mean, this guy is religious. He prizes the law and cleanness, purity, but his heart is messed up. See, yes, God did care about purity, but he cared even more about loving other people and common decency for your fellow man. And the truth is, I suspect that the priest was using his religiosity as a kind of excuse for his own laziness. And yet I can sort of understand it because the kind of reasoning that he gives is the kind of reasoning I've heard within myself. I mean, I haven't left someone to die. But there have been times where I've walked past the need because I've told myself that I had something more important to do. Oh, I can't help that person right now. I've got to write a sermon or I've got to meet up with someone or I'm running late. I need to be doing this other thing. And perhaps we're all a bit like this. Sometimes we sense the need but ignore it and find a reason to excuse it. We're reluctant to help someone because their life is just too chaotic. We tell ourselves that actually if we were to help them, we would be enabling them. You know, we can't just help that homeless person because we're just enabling them in their problems, their addictions or something like that. Or that friend who continually makes the same mistakes, we need to show them tough love. But I wonder how often our tough love is actually just hardness of heart. How often our religiosity is just a cover for our callousness. Perhaps we're too much like this priest than we would like to acknowledge. Or perhaps we're a little bit like the Levite. So the priest walks past and then the next guy comes along, this Levite. He was part of the ministry tribe of Israel. So he wasn't quite as high up as the priest, but he was there helping around with all of the temple stuff. And he wasn't bound by exactly the same rules. It was a little bit lighter for him. And so while the priest passed by on the other side, the Levite came to the man to see how he was. But still he walks past. Why would he do this? How could he do this? I mean, you can see that the guy is half dead. How can he just walk on past? Well, perhaps he was too afraid to help. You wrote, the road, you remember, was a, a dangerous one. If this guy is to stop and help this bloke, then he's going to be in danger. So perhaps he figures, like, I just can't help. It'll be too dangerous. I'll walk on past. And so he protected himself. 
He chose to put his own needs ahead of this man's needs. He loved himself more than the stranger on the road. And I think love is often limited by our self-protection, isn't it? Sometimes it's physical. I remember a few years ago uh, seeing a scuffle break out in a car park at our local supermarket. And I was thinking about do I step in and do something? But I didn't want to. I had my excuses already. I didn't know what was going on. I couldn't read the situation. I had one of my kids in the car with me. I couldn't just endanger them. Just a few days after this, though, I read a news article about John Howard, the former Prime Minister, who was then 79 years old. He'd seen a scuffle in the street and had stepped in to help. And I felt terribly ashamed. Like he had risked his safety at 79 years old. Why hadn't I? See, sometimes it's physical, but often it's emotional or relational. Will you protect yourself or step in? You know, you imagine in the schoolyard when the, the kid's being teased. Do you step in and defend them? Well, the danger is if you do that, then you'll be teased as well. Might be happening in the, in the office at work. There's no better way to build friendships in the office than to, to gossip, to badmouth someone else. Do you join in with that or do you defend the person who's being paid out? What do you do? It's very easy for us to do nothing, to protect ourselves, to walk on by, just like the Levite. But next along the road was a Samaritan. The name Samaritan comes from the city of Samaria. So we're Melburnians from Melbourne. This guy's a Samaritan. He's from Samaria. Now, you need to understand that when this guy comes into the story, everyone listening is kind of ready to boo. They see this guy as the villain because the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. Uh, one writer says that the Samaritans were publicly cursed in the synagogues and a daily petition was prayed every day that the Samaritans would not receive eternal life from God. So they hated each other. They were mortal enemies and had been for centuries. And the tragedy is that actually they were once one people. Samaria was in the northern part of the Promised Land and it was all just one nation at one point. But about a 1,000 years before Jesus, that had a civil war and the kingdom had been split into two. So there was the northern kingdom where Samaria was the capital and then there was the southern kingdom, Judah, where Jerusalem was the capital. And so these one-time people who were all part of the same people had broken apart. Now, around the 8th century BC, the, the northern kingdom, the Samaritans, were taken over by the Assyrians and then the Assyrians colonised them and brought lots of their own people in and they started intermarrying with the people of Samaria. And this was a big no-no. God had told his people that they were to just marry within their own people to, to kind of preserve their uh, sanctity, their, their specialness, their difference from other nations. And so the Jews saw the Samaritans as traitors. They'd compromised. They'd let the side down, and so they rejected them. But it wasn't just one way. Around the time of Jesus' ministry, the Samaritans had defiled the temple in Jerusalem. And so tensions between the Jews and the Samaritans were kind of at an all-time high. And so when Jesus introduces this Samaritan into the story, everyone's expecting him to be the villain. If the man was half dead before, then this Samaritan will surely finish him off. But of course he doesn't, does he? Samaritan doesn't hate the man. He loves him. And he loves him in a way that has kind of defined love, neighbourly love for us ever since. And I want to look at 
the, the specifics of what the Samaritan does and what it teaches us about love and about the life of virtue. I want you to see, first of all, that love is always ready. See, when the Samaritan set out on the road that morning, he had plans. He had somewhere he was going to. He had a destination. But then this was interrupted. And he allowed the interruption. As he journeyed, he saw the man in need and stopped and helped him. This wasn't convenient, but he did it anyway. And actually, love is like this. See, sometimes we get to initiate love. We get to invite someone over for, for lunch or take them out for coffee because we sense that they need it. These are good things for us to be doing. We should be doing them. But love is only truly tested when we can't plan it, when the, when the moment comes to us, when it interrupts our life. You could almost say that love is revealed or defined by our instincts, by what we do in the moment when it just comes at us. Do we walk away? Do we find an excuse? Do we walk on past on the other side? Or do we meet the need? This wasn't convenient for the Samaritan, but care and needs really are. People don't plan to have their house flooded, so you have to put them up in a place to say. People don't plan to have a crisis, but love answers the call whenever it comes because love is always ready. And then secondly, love is willing to feel the need. You see that the man says, when he sees the man, he has compassion. It's a beautiful word. It, it points to the idea that he's feeling something deep within him. He sees something that's wrong that he wants to make right. He wants to fix it up. And that's really quite a courageous thing. See, we like to have a comfortable life. We like to be going well, to be enjoying a simple life. And so if things are going well, we don't want anything to interrupt that. But compassion is willing to be interrupted willing emotionally to be interrupted, to open ourselves up for someone else and their suffering. B.B. Warfield, a great old theologian, said that it's like living someone else's life. He says self-sacrifice means self-forgetfulness in others. It means entering, to, in, entering into every man's hopes and fears, longings and despairs. It means not that we should live one life, but a thousand lives, binding ourselves to a thousand souls so that their lives become ours. That's what compassion is. It's, it's allowing someone else's life to become ours, to, to feel their need, to grieve with them when they're grieving, to be alongside them. Love is willing to feel the need. But it doesn't just feel, it does. That's what we see with the Samaritan, verse 34. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. It's a noble thing to feel the need, to feel compassion, but of course it has to go more than that. Needs need to lead to deeds, don't they? They must lead to deeds. Compassion must lead to action. 1 John 3, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So love does. It feels the need and then does something about it. So we live in a time where it's very tempting and easy to do things at a distance. That's how activism often works. It's even got a name, clicktivism. Or in slacktivism, all you have to do is change your profile picture or sign an online petition or share a YouTube video and you're doing your bit 
but you're not really doing very much, are you? Love does. It gets out of the seat and does, and then it keeps on doing. You see that again with the Samaritan. He brought him to the inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, which is basically two months' wages, and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. See, he doesn't just kind of leave the guy there, drop him and run. He makes sure that he's looked after. He pays the cost. This is a lot of money. And just in case it's not enough, he offers to pay more when he comes back. See, love does and then it keeps on doing. It does what needs to be done and then it does more. It goes as far as it needs to go and then it goes the extra mile. Love does and keeps on doing. It's one of the most challenging aspects of love. See, I can give deep when it's needed in a crisis, but it's much harder to give long, to keep giving, to keep caring. Uh, when I got ordained as a priest in the Anglican Church, we had these training sessions, and one of the most helpful ones was one on grief and how to support people who've just lost someone. There's a whole bunch of really good stuff that they said, but the thing that most stuck with me, most jumped out for me, was they talked about loving people beyond the six-week mark. See, when you lose a loved one, the first couple of weeks are hard, but they're full. There's a funeral to prepare for. There's people sending their condolences. There's flowers all through the house. There's meals in the fridge. There's people holding your hand, giving you a hug, passing you a tissue. But over time, that starts to dissipate. The flowers get old. No one visits anymore. The messages of sympathy slow to a trickle and stop altogether. And by about the six-week mark, you're alone. And then you're facing the first thing of it, the first time of everything, the first birthday without a call from your mum, the first Christmas without your dad at the table, the first milestone for your kids that your wife is not there for. Those are incredibly lonely, difficult moments. And they are the moments where people most need to be loved. And that's when you find the loving person there, that a loving person doesn't just do, they keep on doing. Well, as Jesus finished his parable, you can imagine this hush falling over the crowd, this kind of self-conscious, awkward hush that comes when, when you're being humbled. Jesus breaks into it with this question for the lawyer, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbour to the man who fell among the robbers? Now, the answer is obvious, it's a Samaritan, but the, the lawyer can hardly bring himself to say it. He said, the one who showed him mercy. No, no he doesn't say the Samaritan. He, he can't bring himself to say that. He's his enemy. He can't imagine that a Samaritan could do the right thing. He's uncomfortable. But it's more than that. Because it's not just that the Samaritan is the hero of the story. It's obvious that the religious are the villains. Kenneth Bailey writes that there's two types of sin and two types of sinners in the parable. There's the, the ones who do the violence and then there's the ones who do nothing. That actually by doing nothing, they are doing the wrong thing. And it's impossible for the lawyer not to feel convicted by this. He has come eager to prove himself. But Jesus is saying that the religious are often the worst. 
Jesus has flipped it. This man had come to test Jesus and expose him, but instead Jesus has tested and exposed him. See, the lawyer thinks that he loves God, but Jesus is suggesting that he doesn't because he doesn't love people. See, it's all in the questions. The man says, who is my neighbour? But Jesus says, who proved to be a neighbour? He flips it. It's not about who is your neighbour, but how you can be a neighbour to others. And really this guy doesn't understand love. See, this command to love your neighbour as yourself is such a big one that we try to constrain it. We try to put boundaries around it. We try to define it. That's what this guy wants to be able to do. And most often we define it, and we do the same thing, most often we define it in very narrow terms. Yes, I can love the people who are like me, who look like me, have the same creed, the same political opinions, live in the same area, whatever it is. They're the kinds of people I'm willing to love because they're basically me. It's not hard to treat someone the way you treat them, you want them to treat yourself if they are basically the same as you. But Jesus is blowing out the boundaries. He's saying find the people who are completely different, the people you disagree with, the people you might resent. Love them. That's the the proof of love. So this guy wants to limit it wants to limit love, but that's not how love works. Love doesn't ask, who must I love? Love asks the question, who can I love? So this guy knows God's laws off by heart, but they're not in his heart. He doesn't truly understand love. He doesn't truly understand God. See, God is the God of love. Love comes ultimately from him. He made every person Psalm 139 says that we're handcrafted by him. Genesis 1 says that we're made in his image. And so every single person in here and out there has God's dignity, has a value that God has put on, put on them, on all of us. And so if God has put that value on every human, then we are called to do the same thing. To love God is to love people. Because God loves people. And so we will do the same. And that's the virtuous life. That's how to live well. That's how to love. And in one sense, Jesus is making it really simple. You don't have to ask yourself, who am I supposed to love? You just love everybody. It's simple. And yet, of course, it's so very hard. See, we fall short. Our instincts are missing. We want to serve ourselves rather than other people. Our hearts can often be hard and our actions are slow. We don't want to be interrupted. We don't want to feel the need. If we do something, we don't want to have to keep doing it. We fall short. We're not consistent. We're not persistent. Jesus says, go and do likewise like the Samaritan, but we don't. And God is not satisfied with this. 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. That's a very searing message. It's a confronting message. God is love. And so if you want to say that you know God, then you'll be like God. And so if you don't love like God does, then you have to ask, do I know God? That's confronting. 
but the hope is in the very next verse. Verse 9, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So this is the thing, we all fall short. We don't love the way that we're supposed to love. This guy had come to Jesus wanting to justify himself, wanting to prove that he was virtuous, but he's not. And none of us are virtuous as we should be. None of us love the way that we could or should. But then it's not about how much of a neighbour we are to other people. It's ultimately about how much of a neighbour Jesus is to us. So this hero of the story of the Samaritan points us to the the best Samaritan. The good Samaritan points us to the best Samaritan, to Jesus and to what he did. He saw us there on the side of the road in need. The bloke in the story is half dead. The Bible says that we are dead, fully dead in our trespasses and broken. We need help. We have nothing. We have no resources. We can't get to God. We can't get to heaven on our own. We've fallen along the wayside. But Jesus doesn't walk past. Jesus is not afraid to be unclean. He goes to us. He touches the deadness of our hearts. He takes our sin and deals with it. That word propitiation is a big word. It basically means to appease the wrath of a higher being. So when we do the wrong thing, we... Uh, incur God's justice. But Jesus takes that upon himself. He steps in to take and fulfil God's justice, to take all the punishment that we deserve. Jesus does that. Jesus is the best Samaritan. He's, He's willing to be interrupted from his comfort in heaven. He's willing to be interrupted. He sees the need. He feels it. He goes and does something about it. And he keeps on doing it all the way to the cross. This is his offer for us. And he provides for us. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that that you by his poverty might become rich. He doesn't just kind of drop us and go. He gives us all that we need. We become rich when we accept his care, when we recognise and ask him to look after us, then he will. And then as that happens, he starts to change us. He starts to make us like him. 1 John 4 goes on, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If we've received this love from God, then surely we should be the same to others. But this is not just a a, a call to Fix yourself up. Pull up your socks. God is saying, look at my love and then you will become loving. Tim Keller says, Jesus is seeking to humble us with the love God requires so we will, we will be willing to receive the love that God offers. If you want to be a loving person, look how Jesus has loved you. And so this week, think about how you can be a loving person, how you can live a life of virtue by loving the people around you like the Samaritan did. First of all, decide to make time. The next time a need arises and is not convenient, 
decide to meet it anyway. Then allow yourself to feel the need. Maybe there's people in your life who've got big issues at the moment. You don't want to feel their need. You kind of talk to them. You'll give them a couple of uh, just glib words. Oh, I'm really, I'm praying for you. And then just sort of leave it. No, no, no. Step in. Get alongside them. Live their life, as Warfield puts it. And then commit to doing something about it. What's, maybe there's something practical that you can do. It might not be obvious at first. Don't just ask them. How can I help? They probably won't say that they, they probably won't give you an idea. Just do it. Maybe there's something you can do. And then resolve to keep doing it. After the, you know, there's a point where you do something and you feel good about it. You feel virtuous, but then it gets boring, right? It's not as exciting anymore. It's uncomfortable. It's messy. It's awkward. Resolve to keep doing, keep, keep loving even after that time. And start with the people around you. Start with the people in this room. Think about the people who are your literal neighbours. Like, do you know the people that live in the streets around you, in the, the houses around you? I'm sure they've got needs. Get to know them. Send them around a cake, whatever it is. Get to know them. And then here's the last thing. I want you to try and think of someone in your life that you really don't like and love them. You're going to hate it. <laughs> but it's going to be good. This week, I want you to pray for that person. What I've found is the more I pray about people I don't like, it starts to break me down. It starts, I start to like them. I start to care about them. I want to know how they're going. I want to know what I can pray for. So ask God to open your heart to even the people that you don't like as the Samaritan opened his heart. And when we do that, we start to love like God does. On John 4.12, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. See, this is the miracle that we get to be a part of. God is this loving being who made us, who values every single person. And when we value people in the same way, we start to experience what God experiences and we start to show the world what God is like. See, love begins with God. He's the source of it all. It flows to us and then it flows through us and it's perfected in us. People start to see what God is like through our example. That is a good way to live. That's a virtuous life. That's a life worth living. A life where we love God because we love people and we love people because we love God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for these parables. We thank you for this one, this famous, famous parable and all the things that we can learn from it. Lord, uh, give us loving hearts. You are a God of love. And so we ask that you will enable us to love others. You'll enable us to be willing to interrupt, have our lives interrupted to serve others, willing to feel the need of others and to do something about it and then to keep on doing it. Thank you, Jesus, as that's what you did for us. And we trust you to forgive us and accept us and to change us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.